All right, so before we jump in, I forgot something. Hey, Warren, I forgot to bring, get some water. Could you be a peach and get me some? You didn't expect me to say that, did you? <laughs> I like to keep you guys on your toes. Warren is a good friend, and I thank, you, or thank him for his uh, servant heart. Uh, but we're jumping in Judges chapter 13 uh, here, and uh, we've reached the point in the book of Judges. Some of you have been waiting for this. Your favorite judge, Samson. Right? Our favorite judge is Samson. I, I find this interesting for Christians that we kind of uh, look up to Samson or we kind of emulate him or we tell our kids these Bible stories about Samson. And, and my kids love, uh, there was a time where I was reading these Bible stories in the Action Bible to my kids and every night they'd be like, let's do the one about Samson again. And I'm like, Samson again. And it's interesting to me, I mean, it's not surprising in the sense that Okay, so out of all of the judges, we know the most about Samson. Samson shows up in four chapters in the book of Judges, which is a lot compared to the other judges, all right? There was one about his birth, which we're going to get into today, and then the others, the other three about his life. This is by far the most we know. But it's interesting that we would have uh, such uh, great love for Samson, thank you, Warren, because uh, it's not somebody that I would, as I think about Samson, it's not somebody I want my kids to emulate. I don't want my boys to grow up to be like Samson. If you think about Samson, he is an arrogant, womanizing, angry murderer. But other than that, he's a good guy, right? So we like lift up Samson. So you could see why if people really do their homework and read about Samson, we would understand like, wait a second, Christians kind of look up to this guy, Samson? It's kind of odd. And yet the, the scriptures actually praise Samson. If you go to Hebrews chapter 11, I've talked about that chapter quite a bit through the book of Judges because Hebrews chapter 11 is the book that we refer to as the Faith Hall of Fame where there's these people who are uh, praised, if you will, or uh, congratulated for their faith, for finishing the race well, and Samson's name is in there. But what I would challenge each of us on is that Samson was a man like any one of us, man or woman, but he was a person. He was a human being. He had flaws and faults just like you or I. He was not, um, he was not divine. You know, he didn't uh, live without sin. Only Jesus did that. Samson had his struggles just as any of us, and his struggles, the scriptures are brutally honest about his struggles, and they show up. And yet... What the scriptures are pointing us to, or what I believe God is pointing us to in praising Samson is the fact that Samson, even at the end of his life, he believed by faith that God was going to deliver his people, that God could and would show up, even in the midst of all his difficulties and flaws. I'm going to show you Hebrews chapter 11, since I keep referring to it. It says, how much more do I need to say? It would take too long to recount the stories of the faith of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, we've been through judges here, David, Samuel, and the prophets. By faith, and that's the key word here that I would underline, by faith, these people believed something. These people overthrew kingdoms, ruled with justice, received what God had promised them. They shut the mouths of lions, quenched the flames of the fire, and escaped death by the edge of the sword. Their weakness, Samson, their weakness was turned to strength. They became strong in battle and put whole armies to flight. Women received their loved ones back again from death, but others were tortured, refusing to turn from God in order to be set free. They placed their hope in a better life after the resurrection. 
They placed their hope in a better life after the resurrection. They believed that God was doing something greater than just the here and now, greater than just our flesh and blood. They believed that there was hope after the resurrection. Samson knew that God was doing something greater than just what was happening in his time, and I think he is uh, exalted, if you will, for his faith in God. And I don't believe the scriptures are pointing us to emulate or follow Samson's life journey. I think the scriptures are pointing us to look at Samson and emulate his faith and his trust in God. But we're going to get into all that in the next coming chapters. I'm just trying to set up his life here. So Judges chapter 13 is where we will be today. And if you want to follow along the hardback Bibles in the pews there, page 215 uh, will be where we are at, Judges chapter 13. I'm going to work through these uh, verse by verse, um, and some of you just looked at how long it is. You're like 25 verses. He's going to go verse by verse. We're going to be here all day. I promise it won't be that bad. Here we go. So, verse 1. Again, the Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight. So the Lord handed them over to the Philistines who oppressed them for 40 years. So again, we see the Israelites doing evil in the Lord's sight, which remember what this means essentially is Israel has turned themselves over to the gods of the people around them. Israel has given themselves over to the gods of those people who live in this land. And now God has handed them over because they've done evil in his sight, because they've worshiped false gods. He's handed them over to the Philistines to be oppressed for 40 years. Think about how long this is. This is like a generation One whole generation basically grows up in oppression to this group of people, the Philistines. Now, I don't have time to go through all of what the Philistines were like, but I'll give you just a small glimpse or a little picture. The Philistines were probably the most technologically advanced group of people in this region at that time. They had begun to use iron to make tools and weapons, so that put them automatically ahead of the other people around them. They were also occupying an area near the Mediterranean Sea that gave them a very close picture, or they were in the proximity of a travel line from Egypt up into Europe. So they were put on a line where there was a lot of trade happening, and so they were very advanced, very advanced. And I believe that the Israelites were drawn to the advancements that the Philistines had. They're in this land, and they're looking at these Philistines, and they're thinking, wow, they have a lot of cool stuff. And so they're drawn to them, but they're also oppressed by them. The Philistines were known to be brutal to those that they held under their oppression. They were known to torture their enemies. The Philistines also worshipped a false god, Dagon, who was very, very corrupt and evil. If you look and study Dagon and what they would do and the practices they would do in the worship of Dagon, it was, it was very wicked and evil, certainly in the eyes of God. So let's keep moving. So in those days, a man named Manoah from the tribe of Dan lived in the town of Zoar. His wife was unable to become pregnant, and they had no children. Any of you who have struggled, any of you women, couples who have struggled with infertility, you know the pain that Manoah and his wife are going through. And I would specifically point out here that there's something deeper. In this culture, to be barren was a great disgrace. 
because you had no one to take your line and continue it moving forward. So your lineage would stop with you. But then also, on top of that, in this culture, there was no one to care for you in your old age. If you were blessed enough to make it to an older age and you had no children, there was no one to really care for you. It's one of the things that God holds against the nation of Israel later is they don't care for those who are weak, right? And so if you didn't have any children... This was a serious problem for you. But what happens here? The angel of the Lord, verse 3, the angel of the Lord appeared to Manoah's wife and said, even though you have been unable to have children, you will soon become pregnant and give birth to a son. So be careful. You must not drink wine or any other alcoholic drink, nor eat any forbidden food. You will become pregnant and give birth to a son, and his hair must never be cut, for he will be dedicated to God as a Nazarite from birth. He will begin to rescue Israel from the Philistines. So the angel of the Lord comes to Manoah's wife. It's interesting, they never give us Manoah's wife's name, so I'll only refer to her as Manoah's wife or Samson's mom. We don't have her name. But the angel of the Lord comes to her and says, you're going to have a son, so let me give you some rules about how to raise this son. Now, back in that time, you didn't go to a midwife or to the hospital and they would give you instructions like what these dietary instructions that... God is giving Manoah's wife isn't like, oh, you should avoid alcohol because that would be bad for the child, right? We know these things like don't smoke, don't do drugs, don't do alcohol or drink alcohol. And there's probably other things that you women who have gone through pregnancy avoid because it just does bad things to your stomach. You could probably tell me what they are. But that's not why God is giving Manoah's wife this list. He's not say- she's- the- God is not saying avoid these things because of some kind of dietary restrictions. What he's actually doing, what God is doing is setting up, setting up Samson to be a Nazarite or go into the Nazarite vow. And we'll get to that in a second. But this is far deeper than just some dietary restrictions. That's what you need to know for now. There's something else here too, though. You need to see in the text, in the scriptures, whenever you come to a spot where there is a person or a woman who is barren, specifically a woman who cannot have a child, and God comes to them and says, you are going to have a child. God is showing up in the story. God is inserting himself into the history of that people group. So I'll give you a couple of examples. Genesis chapter 18. Genesis chapter, well, 12 and then into 18, if you follow the story of Abraham and Sarah, God comes to them and says, you will have a child. And they kind of laugh about it. They're like, we're in our old age. How are we going to have a child? And God says that they will be the father, or Abraham will be the father of many nations, right? That through Abraham's line, through the child that God gives them, Isaac, comes Jacob, and through Jacob comes the nation of Israel. So God is inserting himself into human history through the line of Abraham and Sarah and through this child, Isaac. You go a little further in the scriptures. You come into 1 Samuel, and you find this woman named Hannah who's desperate to have a child, and she cries out to God and says, God, if only you would open my womb and give me a child. And God answers her prayer and gives her Samuel. And Samuel goes on to anoint the first two kings of the nation of Israel. He anoints Saul and he anoints David and he is a prophet in the nation of Israel for quite some time. So Samuel has a special purpose as he anoints Saul and David. You go further, go into the book of Luke. You find this uh, man named Zechariah and he and his wife are unable to have a child and God comes to them and says, you are going to have a child and this child is gonna prepare the way for the Messiah, 
for Jesus. This child would go on to be John the Baptist, and he prepares the people for Jesus' presence. And then, of course, we come to Mary. Now, she was not barren, but the Lord comes to her and says, you're going to be with child. You're going to have a child, and that child will grow up to be the deliverer of Israel, right? The Savior of the world, Jesus. So anytime you see God coming into the story in this way and bringing a child, there's something special that's happening. Samson is the only judge, he's the only judge that is defined before his birth. He's given this role before he's even born. All the other judges, God comes and says, I'm going to select this person from among the living. But in Samson's case, God comes and says, I'm going to give you a child, and this child I will raise up to be the deliverer of Israel. So there's something specific happening. Now, the Nazarite vow. The Nazarite vow is something that people would take. Now, think, you might, it might be difficult for us to get this example, but I'll give it to you. Think of those, those of you who have fasted for something, for some reason. You've taken a time where you've set aside and you said, I'm not going to eat for this amount of time. Not because you feel sick or not because of some dietary reason like, oh, I want to go on a diet so I'm not going to eat. You fast specifically because you want to seek the Lord about something. You're saying, God, I'm giving up this in my life. I'm giving up food for this amount of time, 12 hours, 30 hours, a week, whatever it might be. And you're saying, I'm giving up this and I'm seeking you. Well, that's what the Nazarite vow was. The Nazarite vow was a voluntary thing that people would do specifically to seek the presence of God. They would say, I'm going to give up this, the fruit of the vine. I'm going to let my hair grow and these other things. You can find it in Numbers chapter 6 if you want to look at it. Numbers chapter 6 is where the Nazarite vow is found. But they're giving up these things so they can seek the presence of the Lord. But it was always voluntary. You could come and you could say, it's for this set amount of time. I'm going to give up this. And I'm going to seek you, God. And when we get to the end of that time, then I can drink wine or grape juice. I can eat grapes again, any of that stuff. But it was for a specific amount of time and it was voluntary. But in Samson's case, it is not. In Samson's case, Samson is given this vow. He's made to take the vow, even whether or not he wants to or not. God has said, this is the way this child will be raised. So much so that his mother has to take the vow as well. And I wonder, if you think through all of Samson's struggles, I wonder if he doesn't resent this vow. Because he didn't make it. It was made for him. When I was growing up playing sports, played a lot of sports as a kid. I was on a lot of different teams. And I remember being on those teams with friends of mine, players, that played a sport with great resentment because they played it because their parents wanted them to. It was never something they wanted to do. Their parents saw, hey, you have talent, kid. This could be your ticket to a scholarship. You go and you play this sport. And they resented it and they resented their parents for it. Think about this for a second. Maybe this would be a better example. A family business. Maybe you grew up in a family business and it was just known from the beginning that you were going to take over the family business, right? And so from the very beginning, you start to get involved and you're like, I don't Maybe it's flooring, and you're like, I don't even like floors. I don't, even, I don't want to be around floors. I want to do something else. Like, I want to be a firefighter, right? But your family is like, no. Our family has been in flooring for 75 years. You have to be in flooring. And this kid grows up like, I hate flooring. I don't want anything to do with it, right? And they resent what? They resent the calling that they've been given 
because it was chosen for them. They didn't choose it themselves. And that's the position Samson's in. Samson doesn't ask to take this vow. He doesn't decide, hey, I'm dedicating my life to the Lord in this way. It's given to him by the Lord. So I think that's important that we look at that. All right. One other note here before we jump forward. Verse 5. The end of verse 5. What the angel of the Lord says about this child is very, very interesting. He says he will begin to rescue Israel from the Philistines. He doesn't say that this child will deliver He will come and he will set Israel free. He says he will begin the process. It's a very interesting statement about this deliverer. I I believe because Jesus is the ultimate deliverer and he is the one who will set Israel free. But that's for a different time, different conversation. So let's keep moving. Verse six, the woman ran and told her husband, a man of God appeared to me. He looked like one of God's angels, terrifying to see. I didn't ask where he was from, and he didn't tell me his name, but he told me, you will become pregnant and give birth to a son. You must not drink wine or any other alcoholic drink, nor eat any forbidden food, for your son will be dedicated to God as a Nazarite from the moment of his birth until the day of his death. So she gets it. She repeats exactly what the angel has said. Then verse 8, then Manoah prayed to the Lord saying, Lord, please let the man of God come back to us again and give us more instructions about this son who is to be born. So what Manoah wants to know is, God, give us more direction, more instruction. I need more information. And I know exactly how Manoah feels because I can remember the day I first became a dad. And I can remember when Gabriel was born. And praise God for my wife because if she wasn't there, I would have not known what to do. So they go through, hey, don't shake the baby, that's bad. Um, Here's how you strap him in the car seat. And and there you go. Go ahead. I'm like, there's got to be more instructions than this. Because, you know, you buy a dresser at Ikea, and it comes with a pamphlet like this and little pictures of the guy turning the tools, right? So you get a dresser, and you get instructions. You get a kid, and they're like, here you go. Right? So I had no idea. Like, if it wouldn't have been for Aaron, I would have been totally lost. And that's what Manoah is thinking this exact same thing. Manoah's like, wait a second. God came to you and said that this child is going to begin to set us free from the oppression of the Philistines. Like that whole group of people over there. So he's going to organize the Israelites who are in a mess right now. And he's going to begin to set us free. There's got to be more instructions. Like, this can't be. Have you ever been here in this place in your life where you're like, God calls you to something and you're like, okay, God, like, I get that you're calling me here, but what's step two and three and four and five? Because I need to see all the steps because I can't go there unless I know exactly how this thing is going to end. And God's saying, I'm giving you step one. That's it. I remember very clearly when I decided to get into pastoral ministry. I was in student ministry at the time. I was working just up the street here at Brubacher Excavating. I had worked very quickly to advance in the company. I was in the position of a survey chief. I was making very good money, and God calls me, and I felt him calling me, and I couldn't deny it that I needed to come here and be a pastor. And I'm like, be a pastor? Like, how's that going to work out? Like, I don't know what step two, three, four, and five are, and God's saying, this is where I want you to go. I could feel it. Even when I came here, there was a peace to be here, but I didn't know the next couple steps. I didn't know how it was going to work out. And I think what God is calling us to do in the midst of those moments is to be still. Psalm 46. Be still and know that I am God. 
I will be honored by every nation. I will be honored throughout the world. I believe that God is calling us like he called Manoah. Be still. Be still. Because there are times when we get into moments in our lives where we want something more. You're going to see this even come out greater in verse 12. And I don't blame Manoah for wanting more instructions, for wanting extra stuff. But I think God gives us something much better than a guidebook on life. Now, some of you will say, well, the text, the scripture is a guidebook on life. I mean, God gave us the Ten Commandments and the things that we shouldn't do, the things that we should say, shouldn't say, all this kind of thing. And yes, God gave us some instructions. But God gave us instructions about what bring glory to him, what will bring harm to us, right? So he's bring, given us instructions about how to govern our lives morally. But when you're in the midst of some of those questions in life, what I think we need more of in our life is to understand that God's presence is here. You need more of God's presence. And I know it sounds cliche that you just need more of God, but I honestly think that's what you need. You need more of his presence. You need the peace that only he can bring, and you need the reassurance that you are his, and he is yours, and he is with you. That's what I believe God is doing here. I mean, I want you to think about this for a second, because this is a really important point, and and we're going to see how God shows up even greater in Manoah's life here in a second. But what we often want and what Manoah is looking for here is these instructions, next steps. Think about when Jesus was on the earth with his disciples. Think about the mission that he called his disciples to. Go and start the church is basically what Jesus says in Matthew 28. Right before he leaves is what he says to his disciples. Jesus came to his disciples and told them, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you and be sure of this. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. What Jesus asked his disciples to do is go into all the earth and make disciples. How hard is it to make disciples? How many of us are in the process of discipling somebody right now? And what Jesus says to them is go and start the church. Go start the church. And he doesn't give them instructions on how to organize themselves. There's no organizational structure here. There's no marketing scheme. There's no, hey, watch out for denominations. They're going to divide you. He doesn't say that stuff. What he says is, go and tell them about me. Tell them I I died on the cross. Tell them I sacrificed myself for their sins and that I rose again and that my grace is sufficient for them. That's what he tells them. And then he says, oh, and I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. I'm not leaving you. I'm going with you. I will be with you. The disciples get these marching orders like, hey, we got to go out and start the church. Let's, let's go. And they think like God's back here somewhere at home base, and they're going out. But Jesus is with them. And he's calling Manoah here in Judges chapter 13 to something way greater than he and his wife can accomplish. And he's saying, I'm with you. Let's dig deeper into this. Let's keep going. So verse 9, God answers Manoah's prayer. So he asked for more instructions. says, send the man back. God answered Manoah's prayer, and the angel of God appeared once again to his wife as she was sitting in the field But her husband Manoah was not with her. 
So she quickly ran and told her husband, the man who appeared to me the other day, he's here again. So Manoah ran back with his wife and asked, are you the man who spoke to my wife the other day? Look at this casual conversation. Isn't this a bit odd? Manoah's talking to the angel of the Lord and he walks up to him and says, hey, are you the guy? Are you the guy that talked to my wife the other day? Like, This is the angel of the Lord. So there's something that we need to note here that the presence of this angel is not uh, that all-inspiring, right? It's not blowing Manoah away. He's not falling on his face saying, oh my goodness, you did talk to the angel of the Lord, right? He has to come and say, hey, are you the guy? Are you the guy she spoke with the other day? So the angel says, yes, he replied, I am. So Manoah Manoah asked him, when your words come true, What kind of rules should govern the boy's life? When your rules or when your words come true, what kind of words or rules, sorry, I'm mixing those two up, should govern the boy's life and work? So what is Manoah asking for? First of all, he recognizes that, all right, this is probably a prophet. There's something special about this man. But he's asking again, what kind of rules should govern the boy's life. He wants more information. He wants the next steps in the journey. And I think that like Gideon before him, he does not understand who he's talking to. He has no idea who he's talking to. So let's keep going. Verse 13, the angel of the Lord replied, be sure your wife follows the instructions I gave her. She must not eat grapes or raisins, drink wine or any other alcoholic drink or eat any forbidden food. He doesn't give Manoah any more information. He doesn't give him any more instructions. Everything that he gives Manoah, Manoah's wife already knows and has recited to him. There's nothing new here. There's nothing extra. And what he asks for is more information and the angel doesn't give it to him. But then Manoah said, verse 15, then Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, please stay here until we can prepare a young goat for you to eat. I will stay, the angel of the Lord replied, but I will not eat anything. However, you may prepare a burnt offering as a sacrifice to the Lord. Manoah didn't realize it was the angel of the Lord. Manoah doesn't get it. There's excitement. They think this is a prophet, but he doesn't understand who he's talking to until verse 18. Verse 17 first. Then Manoah asked the angel of the Lord, What is your name? For when all of this comes true, we want to honor you. So in other words, when everything you've said has happened, we want to give you the honor for it, right? So he asked the name. What I think is so important here is that you catch this. He's asking for the name, and in other places, Zechariah in the book of Luke, when the the angel comes to him and says, hey, you're going to have a child, your wife is going to be with child, he asks for the name, and the angel gives his name. I'm Gabriel. We find Gabriel in the scripture. We find Michael in the scripture. So typically an angel will give their name. But in this case, and this is so important, the angel says, verse 18, why do you ask my name? The angel of the Lord replied, it is too wonderful for you to understand. It is my deep conviction that who Manoah is speaking to here is the Lord Jesus himself. And Jesus looks at him and says, My name is too wonderful for you to understand. Who is it that has the name above every other name? I'll show you a passage, Philippians chapter 2. You must have the same attitude, Christians, that Christ Jesus had, 
got ahead of myself. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being when he appeared in human form. He humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Therefore, God elevated to him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I believe that Manoah and his wife are speaking to the Lord Jesus because his name is greater than any other name, and there is no way that Manoah could understand the greatness of the name of Jesus. And so here they are, standing in the presence of the Lord. They're standing in the presence of the Lord. And it was far too wonderful for them to understand this name of this person who is with them. I don't believe this is Gabriel. I don't believe this is Michael. I believe this is the Lord Jesus himself. And what's so special about this is Jesus is the one who will deliver Israel. Jesus is the one who is going to finish what Samson is going to start. Jesus is the one who rescues us from our sins. And Jesus cares enough about Manoah and his wife to show up in this moment and give them his presence. He doesn't give them instructions. He gives them his presence. Look at verse 19. Then Manoah took a young goat, a grain offering, and offered it on a rock as a sacrifice to the Lord. And as Manoah and his wife watched, the Lord did an amazing thing. As the flames from the altar shot up towards the sky, the angel of the Lord ascended in fire. When Manoah and his wife saw this, they fell with their faces to the ground. The angel did not appear again to Manoah and his wife. Manoah finally realized it was the angel of the Lord, and he said to his wife, we will certainly die, for we have seen God. Manoah's response is excellent. It's exactly what it should be. He realizes, oh my goodness, we've seen the angel of the Lord face to face. Surely we will die. Why does he respond that way? Because he knows his history, the history of his people. He probably knows the text a little bit. Exodus chapter 33, which would have come long before Manoah's time, when Moses, when God had called Moses to lead the nation of Israel out of Egypt, I I commend to you Exodus chapter 33. It's an amazing chapter about what we're talking about here, about the presence of the Lord. And I didn't have enough time to to dissect it with you. But what Moses is saying is, God, how can we go? If we go and you do not come with us, we will fail. I will not go unless you come, God. Show me that you are with me. And God responds to Moses and says, I know your name. And I have called you and I or I have called you and I will be present with you. I will go with you. I will not abandon you. And that's when Moses says, "Show me. Show me your presence." And God says, "My presence is too great for you to see, but you can see my backside." Right? And he puts Moses in that cleft of the rock and he comes by and he hides his face from Moses because he says, "You cannot see the face of God or you will die." So Manoah is speaking correctly here when he says, We've seen the face of the Lord. We're going to die. That's what's going to happen to us. But that's not what happens to them. Verse 23. But his wife, who had great wisdom in my mind, if the Lord were going to kill us, he wouldn't have accepted our burnt offering and our grain offering. He wouldn't have appeared to us and told us all this wonderful thing and done these miracles. So he's 
She's saying, look, the Lord wouldn't have wasted his time and come to us and done all of these great things only to then kill us just by showing us his presence. God is up to something greater here. God is doing something bigger here. And so what Manoah wanted, and this is the big point that I want you to understand, Manoah wanted a list of rules. He wanted step two, three, four, five. But what God gave him, what God gave him was his presence. God gave him his presence. God revealed himself to Manoah and his wife in a way to say, I am here and I'm with you. This is my idea. This is not your idea. This is my idea. And I am with you in the midst of it. See, I don't know what you're going through. I don't know what your story is right now. I don't know where the place is where you're saying, God, I, I, I want to please you. I want to bring you honor, but I don't know what that looks like. I don't know how to do that. I don't know what the next step is. I have this great hurdle in my life, whatever that hurdle may be, and I don't know how to overcome it. Maybe there's, see, there's all kinds of questions that come in life. And the text answers some and not all. And if a pastor tells you that the, the Bible answers every question to life, they're misleading you, all right? What's better, Coke or Pepsi? Answer it from the text, right? Come on, right? It doesn't answer every question, right? Should I go to this college or that co- college? Where's the answer to it in the text, right? Should I drive this car or that car? Should I date this person or date that person? Should we put mom and dad in a nursing home or should we refinish our basement and one of us stop working so we can care for them, right? Those questions, those answers. And as a pastor, this is the one that people often come to me with. They come to me with these types of questions and I'm like, I can help you with some of the moral stuff and we can work through maybe a process of how we can answer some of these questions, and we can seek the Lord together on this, but I don't have a chapter and verse I can give you. And that's where we find ourselves. That's where Manoah and his wife found themselves. Wait, God, you're going to give us a child that's going to deliver Israel. How do we do that? How do we do that? And God doesn't give them the answers. He gives them his presence. And Manoah wakes up and says, my goodness, we've seen the Lord God is with us. And as you're going through those life questions, right? As you're going through those questions in your life that you can't answer and you're like, there's no, I just don't see a clear answer here, God, but I want to please you. My heart is right. I want to bring you honor. I want to have faith in what you're calling me to do, but I don't understand what the next step is. And God is saying, I am with you. I think that we should invest more time resting in God's presence and seeking the answers to life's questions. Spend more time resting in God's presence than seeking the answers to life's questions. Jesus tells us himself. In Matthew chapter 6, he says, seek first, what, the kingdom of God. Seek me first, and then all these things will be added unto you. So all the answers to the questions, they will come. But seek first my presence. Sit with me. Understand that I am God and that I am with you. And I don't think we make enough time in our lives to do this. And you might be in a place right now where you feel totally overwhelmed. Life is winning. You feel outmatched. You feel beat up. You feel like, God, I just don't know what's next. I'm afraid and I can't see the way out. Maybe you're like Manoah this morning. You're like, God, I need the next Two steps, three steps. Give me the instruction book. And God's saying, 
just going to give you my presence. I just want you to sit in my presence and know that I am here. What I want to do with you now is something we don't often do, we don't often make space to do, is I want to play a song for you. Because this song has really impacted me uh, over the last couple weeks. I've been thinking about this song, and um, I think it fits really well. I also think we need to give ourselves times. Um, you know, we come and we hear a sermon. You hear somebody speak. We, we open the word, and it's all intellectual stuff, but how often do we bring that down into the heart level and make conversation with God? And so what I want to do is give you space to do that. So I'm going to play a song for you. I was going to ask our worship team to do it, but uh, I thought it would be unfair to ask them to put it together so late in the game. And so I'm just going to play it for you. The lyrics will be there. You can look at it. But this song is about being in over your head. It's about going out into the water, letting go of the shore, which is safe, and allowing yourself to go out into the current of God's grace, right? And trust that whether you sink or whether you swim, that God is with you. So just take some time uh, just to think and pray on your own and with, obviously with the Lord. So you guys can play that.
True faith will take you out into areas where you can't see the light at the end of the tunnel. True faith will take you out to see to places where you feel completely overwhelmed and outmatched. Like, God, I just, I can't see my way out of this. But God has taken us right into that spot. You know, whatever that is in your life. Manoah and his wife were given the task of raising up the deliverer of Israel. How impossible is that? And yet God says, I am with you in the midst of it. God said, Jesus said, when he left this earth, he said, I am leaving and I am sending you my Holy Spirit. God's presence. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ this morning, God's presence is inside of you. And you don't have to have every single answer. Rest in his presence. Know that he is with you. And I challenge us, if we do more resting in his presence and less seeking of answers, we will feel more of his presence, and more peace in our lives than we do right now. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for uh, the gift of your Holy Spirit. Father, forgive me for the times that I run out like a soldier given marching orders, forgetting that you are with me every step of the way. Father, I pray for each person in this room. They're all dealing with different struggles, different fears, different anxieties, different places in life where they feel overwhelmed. I pray for each and every one of them that they would sense your presence this morning. Lord, that they would rest in knowing you, Lord, that you would dissolve the anxiety uh, in their heart and in their mind. Father, may we as a group of people live with great confidence in who you have called us to be, not necessarily in ourselves, but in you, Lord Jesus. We praise you. Amen.